Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Isaiah 64 tonight. Isaiah 64 is not a long chapter. It will not take us particularly long to get through the chapter, but the first part of the chapter is so easy to relate to. Living in the world that we are living in right now and anticipating the return of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, and the notion of God's will being done on earth the way it is in heaven and anticipating that we will completely relate to the opening prayer, the opening pleas here. Now, I stressed last week that at this moment in time, as Isaiah is writing these things, that Judah, the southern kingdom, is in Babylon. And as they are under this oppression, as the temple has been destroyed, as Jerusalem has been conquered, They're thinking back on and remembering their own scripture and remembering what God has done for the Jewish people historically. Brought them out of Egypt, took them through the Red Sea, manna for 40 years. They know all of these things. They know about the mighty hand of God and the way that he delivered his people. And now here they are under the oppression of Babylon. So naturally, they cry to God and say, Do that again. Do what you've already done. You've done it before. Essentially, where are you? And that's a prayer that I join in at this moment. We look at the world as it is right now, and we know all the promises of God and the promises of Christ's return, and we're anticipating it. And day by day, as the world gets more crazy and more godless and more sinful, it's just real easy to start begging God, look, just tear open the heavens and come back and do that thing that you've already done. Do the mighty works that we've read about. We know what you did when you were here on the planet. We know what you did with ancient Israel. And we know what you've promised you're going to do. And we're sitting here right now waiting for you to do it. Just do it. And that is the prayer at the beginning of Isaiah 64. And verse 1 starts, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That means that you would tear the heavens open. That you would come down and make it so obvious that it would be like the heavens ripping open and the return of God in his might, in his power. And that kind of return would result in geologic reactions. There would be earthquakes, just like there was in the past. Just like there will be when Jesus comes back and his feet touch the Mount of Olives. And the mountain splits into two. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at thy presence. As fire 
kindles the brushwood as fire causes water to boil. In other words, if you came back, there would have to be a reaction. You can't put fire underwater without it eventually boiling. You can't put fire to brushwood without it causing a flame. The same thing Isaiah is saying, pleading on behalf of the people. If you were to come back now, that would result in obvious deliverance for us. Earthquakes on the earth, there would be immediate results. We'd see it. We'd know it. It would be obvious the same way as water boiling or brushwood burning. But come to make your name known to your adversaries. Every time that God has done magnificent things in history, like delivering Israel out of Egypt, he has said that the motivation for it was so that the nations would know that the God of Israel, he is God. Every time he does it is to demonstrate his might, his power, the same way that the New Testament says that his redeeming of certain people, his salvation of certain people, is to the praise of the glory of his grace. When he acts, it is always to demonstrate himself, to show some facet of his personality and character, and ultimately for his own glory. And so as part of this prayer, almost as a way to convince God to do what he's done in the past, he includes the phrase, so that the nations might tremble at your presence, and so that your name, your reputation, is known among your enemies, known among your adversaries. When you come back, when you do what you're capable of doing, the earth is going to know it, and the nations are going to know it. And they're going to recognize that only God could do this. And that would make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations, the Gentiles, may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things, which we did not expect, you did come down. And the mountains did quake at your presence. So he's reminding God. We know what it was like in the past. We know what happened in the past. So we're waiting for that again because you have that kind of power and authority. We're waiting for you to come back and do that again and deliver your people again. And when you do, it's going to be earth shattering, earth shaking. And then the nations and your enemies are going to know that it is God who did this because this can't be the result of natural consequences. It can't be the result of anything other than God himself coming back and intervening in human history again. When you did these awesome things in the past, which we did not expect, you did come down and the mountains quaked at thy presence. For from of old, in other words, in history in the past, they, the nations, your enemies, have not heard nor perceived by ear. They haven't understood it. Neither has any eye ever seen a God like you, a God besides you. Sure, the Gentile nations, sure, your enemies might have gods that they bow down to of wood and of stone, of metal, of their own making, but those gods don't talk. Those gods don't help people. And in fact, they have to be carried in order to be moved. So come and prove that you are the only God who actually is, the God who exists. 
And the way to do that is by coming back in such a way that you tear open the heavens, you do magnificent things for your people, the earthquakes at your presence, the natural state, the natural order of things is so shook up that the people, the nations, and your enemies have to admit that this has to be God. This is the only living God. This is the true God. It can't be any of our gods, because our gods just stand there. So as a way of encouraging God to help Jerusalem again, he says, for all their lives, for all of history, from of old, they have not heard, they have not perceived by the ear, neither have any of their eyes seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. And thou dost meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness. Who remembers thee in thy ways? That's the kind of person you're going to turn to. And none of their gods can do that because they're wood and stone and metal. They are the object of man's own hands. Therefore, they cannot react with emotion, they cannot react with character, and you can. You actually do meet your people. You actually do act on behalf of those who are waiting for you to react. And you're meeting those who rejoice in doing righteousness, who remember you in all their ways. But now, having tried to encourage God to act again on their behalf, they then have to admit their own sinfulness, their own depravity. In the middle of verse 5, it says, Behold, thou wast angry because we sinned. We continued in them for a long time. That's right. They continued in their depravity and sin and chasing foreign gods and making deals and marrying with foreign women. They've been doing that for centuries. And so... As part of this plea for God to come back and redeem his own people again, they have to admit, you're right to be mad at us. You're right to be angry with us because we are sinful and we've been sinning like this for a long time. And then the question, shall we be saved? And now they try to convince God to save them despite their situation, despite their rebellion. And this is a phrase that we all know and that we've quoted, if you know anything about total depravity, at some point you have come across this phrase. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. That's the NASB rendering of it. It's stuck in my memory through the King James rendering of it so that all our best righteousnesses are filthy rags. So we've got nothing that we can claim to God. And that's what Isaiah is writing here. We don't have anything to convince you with. We can't go to you and say, because we're good, because we're righteous, because we're true and honest, therefore you should redeem us. Instead, the question is, can we be saved? Because everything that we have done so far has made us unclean. We don't feel the weight, we don't feel the power of that phrase, unclean. But among ancient Judaism, there were so many cleanliness laws 
and you couldn't go worship God. And even when the temple was standing, you couldn't go into the temple unless you were ceremonially clean. And there were certain groups that the Jews just considered unclean, like the Gentiles, like the dogs. They're unclean. That's why they had a court of the Gentiles. But they can't come in to the real temple because only the clean can come in there. And here is Isaiah admitting that we, Israel, Jerusalem, as a group, we're all unclean. That's what our sin has done to us. We've all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And that is why every year, this year included, all the trees in my yard shed their leaves, and I didn't rake a single one of them. <laughs> I knew that they were all just going to wither up and blow away, and they have. So this is a good gardening tip right here for lawn care maintenance right here. Here is Isaiah admitting, every one of us have become unclean. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And all of us, because of our sinfulness, because of our depravity, all of us are going to die. Every one of us is going to wither up. And every one of us, because of our iniquities that are killing us, every one of us is going to blow away and disappear, almost like the wind carrying away the dead leaves. Tom, if you would, look up Romans 3, verse 11. Because verse 7 of Isaiah 64, Paul picks up and carries into the New Testament in order to argue for the depravity of humankind. So while Isaiah is making this statement on behalf of Jerusalem, on behalf of Israel, on behalf of the southern kingdom who are in Babylon, Paul picks it up and applies it universally to all mankind. Verse 7 says, there is no one who calls on your name. There is no one who arouses himself to take a hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. That's a really interesting use of the word power there. That's an admission that our sin our temptations, our desire to do evil things is a power. It's, it's alive. It has authority over us. It causes us to do things, and it is only the power of God restraining us that keeps us from giving in completely and utterly to the sins and the temptations of this world and this life. And yet Isaiah says, the reason that we are so continual in our sin is that you gave us over to the power of our sin. You gave us over to the power of our iniquities, and that power is destroying us. Which is very much like Paul in Romans 7, talking about desiring to do good, and yet he finds this law in his flesh, that where I would do good, evil is present with me. The thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, that's what I do. So Paul admits it in the book of Romans, Isaiah admits it here, that evil has an actual power. Temptation, sin, 
has an actual power. And if God does not preserve you, that power will overtake you. You are no match in the one-for-one -one grudge match between you and your flesh. Your flesh is going to win every time, were it not for the restraining force of God drawing you toward goodness and righteousness. And so within that context, Isaiah admits that among us all, there's no one who calls on your name and there's no one who stirs himself up to take a hold of you. There's a very definitive theological statement. All the people who were telling folks, choose Jesus, all the people who were saying, decide for Jesus, make a decision for eternal life, choose Jesus, both Isaiah and Paul admit that's not how it works. You can't do it. You won't do it because the power of sin and temptation in your life restrains you so completely that you will continue to choose and will continue to chase after your depravity. You're not going to choose God. You're not going to chase after God. And one of the most astounding features of Judeo-Christianity is that every other religion in the world, every other respected religion in the world, every other religion that has any kind of history and literature to it, describes how it is that people are supposed to approach God. That you go chase after God. You do enough things to impress God. You do things to obligate God. It's all about men seeking God. And I don't care what other religion you look at. It's always what you've got to do, whether it's to reach nirvana or to get your 70 virgins or to get whatever the future hope is, you attain it by you chasing God. Only Christianity, only Judeo-Christianity says that the way men are saved is that God pursues men. You're in your deep depravity. You're incapable of getting to him. Men cannot choose God. Men cannot chase after God. And therefore, if any man is saved, it's because God pursued that man. And that's what you read all the way through the Bible. And that is the fundamental theology of sovereign grace. It's the fact that men are sinners and incapable and undesirous of going to God. Therefore, God had to come to men, had to pursue men, had to elect, had to choose men, and then draw them to himself by his power and his Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with the man himself, nothing to do with our flesh. And that theology is right here in Isaiah. So then Paul picks it up. What did I say? Romans 3.11, Tom is going to read that for us. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one understands, and no one's righteous, and no one seeks for God. And he's saying that on the basis of what Isaiah has already said. He didn't just make that up. It's not some theological novelty. Instead, he knows full well what Isaiah has already declared, that human beings are so overtaken by their sin, and even their good deeds, even their righteousnesses are like filthy, bloody rags, and we all wither like a leaf, and then we're just blown away. There's no one who calls on the name of God. There's no one who stirred himself up to take hold of God. 
Therefore, if anybody ends up in relationship with God eternally, it has to be because God acted. It cannot be because the man acted. And that is a theology, like I keep saying, that is both Old and New Testament. So our job is to stand toe-to-toe with what it says and adjust our thinking accordingly. And there are just so many theologies out there that compete with that idea and tell people you're capable, you're good, God appreciates your efforts. And if you're good enough, God will accept you on the basis of your goodness. The myth of St. Peter at the, at the gate of heaven, weighing your good deeds and your bad deeds. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad just a little bit, then you're going to get in. That's all errant theology that is based on the human being doing something so good or enough good enough stuff that God lets him in based on a technicality. That's not what the Bible says. Even Jesus said, your holiness to get into heaven has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. They were the ones who were trying to do the law. So your personal righteousness has to exceed theirs, which is Jesus' way of saying, you're not good enough, they're not good enough, nobody's good enough. And yet there are people out there saying, just be good. And God will accept you on the basis of your goodness, despite what the Bible plainly says. And let's dig further into that. Everybody turn to Psalm 14 for just a moment. And actually, Psalm 14, the first three verses, are repeated in Psalm 53. So this is an idea that God is really trying to drive home here. Psalm 14. Psalm 14, the very first three verses, say this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Okay, there's a whole category of human beings. All the people out there who deny God, the atheists of the world, he says they all are lumped in as fools. They are denying the obvious. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds, and there is no one who does good. Paul picks that up, imports it into Romans 3 again, in order to say that men are completely incapable and corrupt. Verse 2 says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand or who seek after God. So now David has said it, and Isaiah has said it. There's nobody who stirs himself up to seek after God. The answer in verse 3 is, after God has looked to see if there's any who understand, is there any who seek after God? Verse 3, they have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There's no one who does good. No, not even one. And we're familiar with that theology because Paul picks it up in the book of Romans in order to say that men are completely incapable of seeking after God. So like I said, even that passage from Psalm 14 is also in Psalm 53. So it is repeated several times in the Old Testament. It is repeated throughout the New Testament. 
in all the theology of man's depravity and incapability and all the times that Jesus says there are just things that you cannot do. And so, in praying to God, how are they going to approach him? They have to approach him on the basis of we're sinful. We've been sinful for a really long time. And the only way we can be saved is if you save us. And what would be your motivation for saving us? Well, we're your people. And since we are the ones you chose, then please do what you have promised to do. Please do what you've done in the past. Please deliver your people not based on us, not based on our capability, not based on the fact that we chose you or managed to get to you through our righteousness. Save us because we are the people who you made promises to. Now, O Lord, says verse 8, you are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. So yes, all of us are sinful. Yes, all of us are depraved. Yes, all of us deserve your wrath. But you're also our father. And you are the potter, and we're the clay, and you made us like this. In fact, Paul picks that up too. If you would, Micah, turn to Romans 9.21. We'll get right there with you. The rest of us are going to turn to Jeremiah 18. And we're just going to read the first six verses. Jeremiah, remember, is a contemporary of Isaiah. He's writing to the same group of people who are in the same situation in Babylon. Jeremiah 18 begins, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there, and there he was, the potter, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make it. In other words, he was making something. It didn't turn out good. He squashed the clay and started over again, made something else. And it was all up to him. It was all up to the potter. He could do whatever he wanted with the clay as it pleased him. And then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. I can do whatever I want with you because you're the clay, I'm the potter. Now, Paul picks that up, interestingly, in Romans 9, which begins with the question, has God abandoned those people whom he foreknew? And Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about a defense that God is faithful to Israel. And within that context of talking about Israel, he brings up the potter again. So if you would, Micah, read Romans 9, 21, or any part of that that you feel like reading. It's a question also. It says, does not the potter have the right over the clay? make from the same lump one vessel, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. And that's all part of him asking the question, you're going to say to me then, how does God yet find fault? 
because who has resisted his will? That's essentially what Isaiah has said here. You've done with us whatever you want to do. You're the potter, we're the clay. So then Paul picks that up, knowing that, knowing that theology, understanding what Isaiah has said, and says, well, then how are we going to blame you? I know people are going to try. They're going to say, well, then how does he find fault with us, seeing as how we've only done what he wanted us to do? And his answer to them is, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to the one who made you? Does the thing that's made say to the one who's making it, why did you make me like this? And that's all part of the context of what Micah just read. Doesn't the potter have power over the clay to make it however he wants? So even Paul, in answering the deep theological questions of God's absolute sovereignty over everybody in salvation and in judgment, goes back to the example from the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah was told to go to the potter's house specifically so that God could give him a visual aid and say, see what the potter just did? That's me with Israel. I can do with you whatever I want to do. Isaiah has the same thinking in verse 8 of Isaiah 64 and says, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. So there's a lot of theological depth going on there. In that simple phrase, that simple reference to the fact that we are clay and you are a potter, that is an admission of God's absolute sovereignty and that God can do whatever he wants with what's his. And Israel is his, and all mankind is his, and the whole creation is his, and he can do whatever he wants. And if the end result of that is that he judges his enemies, they cannot argue, well, how can you find fault with us? Because you're sovereign, and we did what you said we were going to do. And Paul's answer is, you don't get to answer back to God. He's the potter. You're the clay. He's going to do what he's going to do. And that's about as good a defense for sovereignty as you need. He's the one in charge. He's going to do what he's going to do. And you have no option but to accept the fact that that's what he's doing. But again, that theology goes all the way back to Isaiah, goes all the way back to Jeremiah. It's not new. Paul did not just make it up. He is basing all of that in what's already been written in the prophets. So then the prayer is, since God can do whatever he wants to do, well then don't be angry beyond measure, O Lord, O Yahweh. In other words, let there be a limit to it. At some point, let your wrath be filled up. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Neither remember iniquity forever. At some point, forgive us. At some point, fill up your wrath and then finish with it. Behold, look now. All of us are your people. You are our father. We are your people. We're really guilty and you can do whatever you want with us, but because we're your people, don't let your wrath continue forever. Let it be filled up at some point, and then forgive us of our iniquity. Don't hold on to it eternally. On the basis of, we're your people. You chose us. You made promises to us. You made promises through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at what this prayer includes it is asking God to go back 
and consider his own character, remember the promises that he himself has made. In other words, they're claiming the word of God as part of their plea for their own salvation. That's a really good way to do it. God, you chose us. God, you redeemed us. You sent your son. Your son died for us on the basis of everything you've already said and already done. On that basis, for your own character, for your own reputation, for your own namesake, for that reason, forgive us. Not because I'm good, not because I'm personally righteous, but because I'm yours. Forgive me. Behold, now look. All of us are thy people. And now reminding God of their state. Your holy city. Your holy city. The holy city that belongs to you. Jerusalem itself. Thy holy cities have become a wilderness. All of the cities and towns in Judah have all become destroyed and are a wilderness now. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, that was the temple at Jerusalem, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all of our precious things, all our holy things, all of the things that were contained in the temple with which we worshiped you, all of those things have become a ruin. So look at our state, God. We're your people. We're in bondage and your holy city is destroyed, and your holy things are ruined, this is all the inspiration for why the prayer began with, rend the heavens and come down. Do something. <laughs> Look at the state we're in. Granted, you're the potter. You can do whatever you want to do. But we know your history. We know that you have defended us before because we are your people, because you chose us, because you made promises to our forefathers. So based on that, do again what you've already done in the past. And I think that's a really good way to pray. I think when you go to pray to God, you should take his word back to him. Take his promises back to him. Remind him of what he has done and what he has promised and ask him to do it again. I mean, Jesus himself gave you the wherewithal when he said, go and say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed is your name, your kingdom come. There, let's start right there. Do what you said you're going to do. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You said you were going to do it. Rend the heavens, come down, do it. You said Jesus is coming back. Do it. <laughs> Bring him back. You said that at some point that righteousness was going to overtake the world like a flood. That the bridles of the horses and even the bowls we eat out of are going to be holiness to the Lord. Everything is going to be overtaken by the holiness of God. And in this present depraved evil world, doesn't that seem like a, a good prayer? God, just do what you said you're going to do. Rend the heavens. Come back. Show your mighty power so that your enemies, those fools, have to admit that there is no God but you. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our precious things have become a ruin. 
Wilt thou restrain thyself at these things, O Lord? Look at all this. How can you stay quiet? Don't these things motivate you to act? And that is a question I've been asking a lot lately. Look at the state of the world. How much longer can you wait? Wilt thou keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? Or won't there be a stopping place? Won't there be a quitting place? Now, of course, there's no big 65 in Isaiah's actual writing here. Chapter 65, which we'll pick up in next week, begins with God responding to them and saying, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. There's grace. There's God who is the one who moves. Because men cannot stir themselves up to seek after God, here's God saying, I seek men. And I permitted, I allowed, I caused men who were not seeking me to find me. And that's the beginning of chapter 65, which we will look at next week. As I told you, tonight would not be a particularly long chapter, but an important chapter that I hope gave you some idea of how to approach God, how to pray to God, knowing that he is sovereign. We know that he's in control. We know he's the potter and we're the clay. But we also know that we're told to go and ask him to defend his own word, his own righteousness, his own reputation, and that we can pray to him to do what he said he's going to do. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.